Welcome to the LBCF podcast. Our vision is to learn to live and love like Jesus, where we live, work, and play. To find out more about our community, you can visit us at lbcf.org. We hope you are encouraged and challenged by this teaching from our community. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. Have a seat. We're going to get started. We have a lot to talk about today. I'm very excited about it. Um, John and Jana will also have a sign-up sheet for their small group. So if you want to sign up, if you've never participated in a Colossian way um, and you want to sort of get a little bit of the heart under what, we're, what we try to do throughout all the spaces in our community of like how do we have very genuine, real conversations with each other about things that matter in a way that holds our unity in Christ as primary above these particular topics, I would really encourage you to participate in that. It's a really beautiful way to learn how to do that and also to have sort of a smaller environment where you can work out how tricky that can actually be. Um, And so if you are interested, they will have a sign-up sheet today. Um, To start us off today, I want to invite up Monica Harmon to read our parable for us, and she's going to take it away. (laughs) This is the parable of the prodigal son, Luke 15, 11 through 32. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. 
So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, you killed a fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Amen. Thank you, Monica. That was beautiful. I love having whoa. I love having different voices. And Monica, it's so great having you up front to read. Um, we are in a series right now. If you are new to the community, or if um, weeks, if your weeks are anything like mine, where you forget what in the world we were doing in church the past Sunday in one week's time, we're in a series called "The Parables." of Jesus, a new creation imagination. And that um, title is, is really pointing us to that when Jesus came and he starts teaching and he starts living amongst these people, he's actually trying to not answer all the questions. He's actually trying to provide better questions, provide a better imagination of what the kingdom at hand would look like. Because Jesus knew, and we know, that if all you try to do is apply kind of straight, linearly, the exact same things without applying this to wisdom, imagination, how can we actually ask better questions in our real life, um, that that can become tricky, obviously. So this, hopefully, as we look at the, the incredible expertise of Jesus' storytelling, um, that we could have a better, renewed um, imagination. And we are in the middle of a vision of 2022 where as, as we sat with that, and if you could pull up that slide for our vision, it should be uh, earlier in the PowerPoint. Um, we have been going through this do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. And I would really encourage you, and I want to make this an every week thing, that you as my community, I really long for you all to to ask yourselves, are we as a community doing this well? Are we actually walking this out? Or are we just putting words on the things that we're just going to continue doing anyways? How well are we doing? Um, we really value as a pastoral team and as an elder board as well, receiving feedback on, on how we as a community are holding this up. And so I'd encourage you to just be thinking through all of the things that we've been talking about, these small groups that we're having, all these places to connect, are these um, flowing out of a place where we long to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. So let's get into this parable right now because there's a lot to cover. Um, and I think that, is there anybody in the room that this is their first time hearing that parable? And there's no shame. I just want to make sure if I have to go really backwards and we have to just start. Okay, so we've all heard this. This is something that exists. Also, you don't even have to have been a part of a church to have heard this. This sort of parable exists in culture. It's just a, it's a story that, we've, that you may have heard even if you didn't grow up in church. But I want to go back because there's something really important to the context of what Jesus is addressing here that we need to get into. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open, you can follow with me 
uh, you can keep me honest, you know. Uh, we're going to go to Luke 15. We're going to go to Luke 15 because the, one of the key things that we have to understand of, of why and how this is so important lies in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. Isn't it interesting the people who actually draw close to Jesus? The tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And we've heard that, and I think that sometimes we just kind of skip past that, and we forget to take seriously who and what a tax collector and a sinner was at that time. And for us hearing this, I mean... I don't know if anybody here works for the IRS. We might not be best friends if that is the case. It's fine if you do. But when we think of a tax collector, oftentimes what we think of is a person who overcharges a certain amount and pockets what's left, somebody who's kind of mildly dishonest maybe. But what we have to understand is at the time, Rome ruled the known world from what we would see now is England all the way to India, right? That they, they ruled the known world. And they didn't have access to airplanes and helicopters and immediately mobilizing troops in other places. So how do you keep that large a landmass under your control? It was through a massive army. Rome had this massive army. And how do you pay for such a massive army? Through taxes, so these taxes were funding this massive army, which was oppressive and brutal. There, were, there are stories, more than I would even like to get into, and ones that aren't even appropriate to have slides for, of the ways that this brutality played out for these people. They would take over entire places and murder men, women, and children and put them on stakes and line the streets so that when people would come into these towns, they would know, if you mess with us, this is what happens. That's the kind of brutality that Rome kept up all the time. And the way that it paid for that brutality was through taxes. And so when you had a person in your company who was a tax collector, it was a person who was actively enabling the brutal oppression the brutal um, occupation of Rome. These were people who were doing the work, and this was not just some arbitrary thing. Most of these people would have known somebody who had, who had been oppressed, who had been kept under rule, who had had a friend or a family murdered by this regime. And so a tax collector was not just somebody who was mildly dishonest. It was somebody who was actively enabling this brutality. And a sinner was not, um, because we hear that word too, and it's like, well, you, you sin, I sin, we all sin, fall sh short of the glory, and we kind of go, yes, we are all sinners. We understand that. A sinner was actually a class of people. A sinner, um, and that included people who were um, disabled, deformed, ostracized, or had chosen in their own life a perverse sort of way of life. And so we have this, this two groups of people, either people who by their, by their own choice had chosen, to had chosen to support this brutal occupation, 
or people who had chosen this perverse life by choice or people who not by their own choice had been born messed up in some way. And so that is what a sinner and a tax collector would do. And what we see here is that that is an entire category of people that Jesus is choosing by as he sits with them, as he has a meal with them, what we have to understand is in first century Judaism, when you sat with somebody and had a meal, you were identifying yourself with those people. It was not just a show of hospitality. It was, a, it was actually an extension of your identity to be with those people. And so who are the Pharisees and the scribes? Because it's important that we also understand that these are people who had the first that as a rule, as a very baseline to become a scribe, you had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized. If any of you in here think that you are um, holier than a Pharisee and a scribe, I'm just going to let you know they school all of us for sure. If any of you have tried to do the reading through the Bible in a year, most of us quit around numbers. Numbers is usually the cutoff point where people go, I'm going to go to James or 1 John. I can't do numbers. I can't do numbers. I, it's, it's a struggle for me. But these, as a group of people, were, were so committed to the holy life that they, on the Sabbath, would only take a certain amount of steps. Because if you take more than a certain amount of steps, that could be considered work. And they don't work on the Sabbath. That's how seriously they took this. And so you have this group of people that have seen Jesus not just extend hospitality, but choose to identify with a group of people that had chosen a perverse or brutal life. So that is what they're concerned about here. They're saying Jesus eats with these people. And just in case we forget, if you rewind the tape one chapter, Jesus also eats with the Pharisees. He sat with them too. Jesus doesn't just choose to identify with the sinners and tax collectors. A chapter prior, he sat and he healed these people who were critical of him a chapter after. And how quickly we forget the grace that we've been extended. So, they are accusing him. They're upset with him. They, are, they have an emotional attachment to the fact that he is eating with these people who are um, actively funding the oppression of them. And uh, Jesus follows it up with this three-tier response about lost things being found, sheep, a coin, and a son. Um, there's a... There's a movie called called Seven Pounds. It's a Will Smith movie. And in case you want to leave me a Yelp review of how relevant I am, this is the second time that Will Smith has shown up in one of my sermons in a row. So if you're gonna if you're gonna review how relevant I am, that should play into it. But there's this movie where this man has done something horrible, and he spends the entire movie. Um, trying to find out how he can repay this horrible thing that's happened. But he spends the entire time picking, picking and choosing who is deserving of him sort of repaying this debt that he has. And it hit me how often when we live in the debt of our own shame, 
how often we will make other people live in our debt. How often we will keep other people in our debt and we will make them prove to us that they're deserving. Make them prove to us that they are worthy of our forgiveness, of our love again. Have they apologized enough? Have they flogged themselves enough to prove to us? And the parable today that Monica just read for us is a story about a father that is undoing that contract and is offering us a new invitation. So there's a hint here because we've often heard this talked about, the parable of the prodigal son, but the text doesn't say that this is a story about a son. Let's go. It says, verse 11, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. This is a story about a father. It makes it very clear the main character in this story is not the son, the older or the younger son. This is a story about a father who had two sons. And that should clue us into when we get to the end and we're talking about what are we meant to take away from this. Our gaze should always be at what is the behavior of the father in this story. So often... We identify ourselves with one of the two sons, and then the gaze turns inward at what have I done wrong, and it becomes this, just this, this replay of shame that we feel. But I really think the text is calling us to look at the Father. So we see here that even in our tendency to identify with one of the sons, what we'll find out is not just that there was one son that was lost, but when we get to the end of this parable, we'll see that this is actually a story about two lost sons. One was lost to his badness, and the other one was lost to his goodness. So I want to make sure that we touch base on a couple things that are happening here that really point to how intensely this would have been experienced by this audience because what we'll see here is that Jesus as he was responding as the sinners and tax collectors drew near to him and the scribes and the Pharisees stood off in the corner complaining Jesus will often create this parable where the people who are meant to identify with certain characters it's not even that tricky right the lost son in this parable is who the tax collector the sinner that's the lost son, and he's making it very obvious. And who is the older son? The scribes and the Pharisees. He's making it really clear. These are who's at play in this parable. So what happens here is that it says, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said, and he just jumps right in and says, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And we kind of just read that and we skip past it. But what we, what we don't understand here is that that is the younger son who would have been entitled at his father's death to a third of the estate. The older son would have gotten two-thirds. younger son would have gotten one-third. And, and he says, I don't want to wait until you're dead. I want what's mine now. And so in order to make that happen, one, the father never had to oblige that request. The father could have said, no, oh, and also I could beat you brutally because that happened at, 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 at the time. But what happened is the father chose 
not just to withdraw from his IRA and give it to his son. That's not what we're talking about here. A third of his estate would have meant that the father would have had to go through the trouble to actually sell off a third of his stuff. That would have taken effort. That would have taken time. That would have taken organization to actually sell off a third of his estate to give to his son. So there was an intentionality and a follow-through where the father actually put effort forward to follow through with this request. Not only is it a third of the estate, but that is a third of his reputation in his community. Your estate, what you had, was your reputation. It was how they saw you. It was your influence. He was willing to decrease his reputation and influence and standing in the community a third. Because that's what would have happened. His, his power in the community, he was willing to also give that up because what you had was your influence. And so when he says, give me my share, the father obliging that is also putting his reputation and his influence and his power on the line for that exchange. So this inheritance is a big deal. It is the younger son saying, you are dead to me. And I'm going to take this regardless of what this will cause in your life, regardless of how this will stress out the family, I am willing to separate myself completely from you in exchange for a third of what you have. It says, not long after that, the younger son got together. All he had set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and, went and hired himself over a, to his citizen of the country who sent him in, into the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And so, um, and then we have after that, let's go to the next slide. So the son comes to his senses here, and he does what, I, I'm not sure if any of you have ever been busted doing something that either it was a mistake or something you shouldn't have been doing, but you start rehearsing your speech, like that internal sort of shameful, okay, I'm about to have to fess up to what just happened. Um, I used to work at Home Depot, and I used to work there in Reno, and I would be in the morning crew, and Reno has has this thing called winter, and I know that that's not a familiar Thing. But winter is a cold season where precipitation falls from the s- sky. It's wild. Um, you've probably read about it in books. But um, th- I would be there at 4, f- 5 a.m., and I would help people load things up into their trucks. And there would be mornings where it was 20, 30 degrees outside. But I would just have to wait for people to call me to come help them load up their trucks. And so I just had to kind of wait, and there would be mornings where I would just sit in my truck because it was freezing outside and, and I would turn on the heat. This one morning, I was very tired and I went in my truck and I turned my truck on and the heat came on and I was like, I'm just going to like lean the seat back a little bit. I'm just going to rest until I, and I, so I put the, I put the um, walkie-talkie on my chest and I laid back and most of you probably already know where this is going, but the, the next thing I hear is, on my window, 
And, I, and have you ever had that moment where you wake up and your alarm hasn't gone off, but you know that you're supposed to be awake for something? I had that instant jolting awake, and thank goodness it wasn't my manager or somebody, but it was somebody that I worked with just tapping on my window, just being like, hey, buddy, you fell asleep in your car. And so I remember that same feeling that I had of like, okay, I, I'm about, I know that some, at some point today, I'm going to have to fess up to this. I'm going to have to have this conversation. So I'm like, what's, what's the best excuse that I have? Um, I'm so sorry. And I'm replaying this apology in my head over and over again, trying to get like the most condensed um, self-flogging like, possible apology so that I can keep my job. But that's what's happening with this son right here. He comes to his senses and he starts rehearsing this speech. He says, I, okay, when I get there, I'm going to pump myself up and I'm going to say, I've sinned against you and against, and against God and I know that I can't be your son, but can I work for you? Because he's starving. So what we see here is he never even had a chance to get through that whole speech. It says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the Greek here says he fell on his neck. The father ran to him. And I don't know if you've ever had a crying child fall on you, but the way that they collapse into you and they fall on your neck, that's what it's evoking here is that the father filled with compassion and love, went to his son who stunk and had hurt his family and had done all this horrible stuff and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son is like, okay, this is my chance. This is where I give my speech. So the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the whole time he's rehearsing this, his father, I can see him just going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's looking for a servant. He's like, he's trying to call people over because his son is here and he has this whole plan happening in his head. So his son is trying to rehearse this speech that he thinks will earn his way back into his father's graces. And the whole time his father is looking for a servant because he has a plan. His father doesn't even hear any of it. His father's just like, yeah, hey, yeah, cool, great. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. My cleanliness, put it on him. Put a ring on his anger. And he's not talking about his high school class ring. He's talking about the signet ring, which evoked immediate sonship, immediate invitation back into the family, the authority of the family. The signet ring was what they would use to sign contracts at At that time, he said, get the ring and put it on his finger. Give him the authority, confer sonship on him immediately. Put it on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf. Whose fatted calf do you think that was? It was the older brother's. This was his stuff. The younger son had given up his part. So everything else belonged to the older son. The fatted calf was not this casual thing. Having steak, having a fatted calf was something you might have once in your life. Bring the fatted calf which belonged to the older brother. So he's painting this picture of like already people who are paying attention are like, whoa, this isn't going to go over really good for the older brother. (laughs) 
and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and is now alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. I love how quickly it moves from like, let's plan a party to let's have a party. Like this is something where the father does not notice there is not even a hint, not even the slightest hint that he says, okay, we're going to have a party once we have a little conversation. We'll have a party once, once you own up to what you have done here. It says, no, we're going to plan a party, and the party's going to happen now. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. Of course he was in the field. That's where he's been this whole time, working, hustling, not only out of obedience to the father, but because if he's in the field, he is enhancing his inheritance the older son is, is working to further his stuff. And when he comes near the house, he heard music and dancing. Okay, how loud does dancing have to be to hear it? That's the thing that I was like, I've seen dancing, and I've been to quite a few weddings. There, the party has to be going pretty hard to hear dancing, Right? So this is no small party. This is not something that's just kept inside. They're saying, we're going to party loud enough that you can hear the dancing. That's huge. Let's turn really quick because I think that what we see here is, is something that we also see in Galatians 1.15. This is a pattern. This is something that we don't just see in parables, but we actually see it play out throughout Scripture over and over again. Galatians 1.15, Paul is recounting his journey on the road to Emmaus. And he says, But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to, re- was pleased to reveal his son to me. God delights in revealing his son, delights in bringing those who are lost to a place where they are found, delights in this pattern of baptism that we see of things were dead and they are alive again. That God is pleased, that he insists, and the same feeling that I had when I fell asleep in my car when I was at work on the clock thinking I was going to lose my job, even when people forgive you, there's an internal amount of shame that you sort of carry, and it takes you time to work that out. So the son may have felt so unworthy to be at that party. It may have been really uncomfortable for him. He's still carrying the history of what he's just come in from. He may have not had time to shower yet. There may have been a really hard place for him, but the father insists, you dance. You're here again. There's no qualifications. There's, no, there's nothing that you need to hop over. There's no explanation that I need. I need you to party. And he insists on it. He says they began to celebrate. And then it says, so we called. Uh, let's go back one. Let's go back one slide really quick. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Sorry, yeah, I guess we could go there. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come. Oh, great. My brother's come. That's what this party is about? 
He replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf. Oh, he's killed my fattened calf. Great. Because he has him back safe and sound, the older brother, who, by the way, has not done a single thing wrong his whole life, has just been there working hard. The older brother became very angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Something so beautiful that we miss here as well because it would have been so easy for Jesus to really rib the Pharisees right here. You want to stay out of the party? Good. Be excluded. That's your call. Jesus made sure to to understand that the father goes out and he pleads with them. He says, I want you in here too. I want you in here too. I want your son here, but if we lose you, that's a problem too. The father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look. And if I answered my father that way, it wouldn't have gone over so good. So all of the, already we see this older son is, uh, is, is, we can start to get hints that even he has missed the heart of the father Younger son has missed the heart of the father to his badness. The older son has missed the heart of the father to his goodness. Look, all these years I've been, I've been slaving for you. I mean, let's be honest, he's been slaving for his inheritance also, right? Been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not my brother, when this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. Notice also the pattern in alarms. Sirens should go off in your head whenever you hear yourself talking about other people that way. Whenever you hear yourself talking about others as that person over there, That group over there, the person that voted for this person over there, the person that has this belief over there, that group, whenever you hear yourself talking about other people that way, alarm should sound in your head. Because that's Genesis 3, once the fall had happened and all of a sudden we separate ourselves from each other. We forget how near we are and how interconnected we are The older son in the middle of his pain says, that son over there, that son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home. You kill the fatted calf for him. My son, again, the father in this moment could have corrected, could have been brutal, and he would have been called for. Like the patriarch at this time, you don't talk back to them. That didn't happen. Even in the midst of him being disrespected by the older son as well, says, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because his brother of yours was dead and is alive again. And he was lost, was lost and is found. Yesterday in the middle of me writing notes, I went out to kind of prepare dinner for my kids. And I was, I I was, this whole sermon was swirling in my head and I go out into the living room, and anytime Sarah says, Dad, we have a little problem, 
I know that that's, that's a sign that my next hour is going to be occupied by something. The little problem was that she had gotten... Have, does anyone remember Gak from Nickelodeon? They have this like new version of it called Flarp. Don't worry about it. It's ridiculous. But it's goop that when it gets into hair becomes absolutely impossible to deal with. She goes, we have a little bit of a problem. And I'm looking at her and she's has this, she's clearly been trying to untangle her hair, which has further mashed hairs into this glob of flarp in my daughter's hair. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, what in the world is going to, I'm like, okay, I'm reading and I'm like swirling in this story about the like, grace of the father towards his children who have made big mistakes and I'm just and I'm sitting there and I'm like well we may have to cut your hair off and she was like she's like that's fine I've gotten haircuts and Vanessa was out with her parents and I'm like that's maybe fine for you if I cut your hair off um, I may have to sleep somewhere else tonight so I was like okay we can't do that I don't know but I'm 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 sitting there and I realize how quick in me I am to like, I want to deal with this patiently with her. I want to find a way to like explain like, how can we not do this again? Or like, how can I make her apologize enough? And so I'm massaging coconut oil into her hair for an hour until all this stupid stuff comes out. But I'm like, that's, sometimes I don't find myself identifying with the younger of like, I've ran away and I've done all this crazy stuff, or I don't find myself struggling to identify with the older son. Like, I definitely um, don't feel like I have any semblance of self-righteousness. I'm like, I'm much more aware of my problems than to be able to do that. But I realize, and Anessa reminded me of, Nowin has a reflection on this, and he says, how are we meant to look at the Father? and embody the Father's behavior towards each other. Because, of course, it would be easy to identify with one of the two sons here and say, like, oh, my gosh, thankfully we've been welcomed back in, and, and that feels great to have grace poured over me. And also the invitation goes out even to the self-righteous, and it says, come have the party with us. But how are we meant to embody this way of being with each other where we don't hold each other in our debt. Where we say, like, I will celebrate you coming to life wherever you do. Where we hold forgiveness out readily with each other. Where we understand that relationship with each other and coming close is something that the Father was willing to lay down his reputation for, lay all of his stuff apart when he said, as long as we're connected, that's the best thing. That's the, that's the number one priority if we're connected. And if we are disconnected based on you um, taking your stuff and running away or thinking that you'll earn it by being here and being really good that both of those are ways that we can miss the heart of the other. And I know that for me, as I sat, I did sound last week, and I realize, and I, and I remember any time that I'm able to sit in a room and just hear somebody speak that Barb was here teaching, and my mind was in a thousand other places. 
My kids were sick. I was stressed out. I was trying to handle things. And sometimes when we sit in a room, no matter how good or poor any teaching is, our minds are just elsewhere trying to manage what life is coming at us. And that may be you right here also. And sometimes we, we leave this space wondering if we've actually been welcomed in, wondering, like, where is God in the midst of all of this? And I just want to make sure to reiterate that if you're here and you feel like you don't really identify with the older son, younger son, or the father, and you're just here just trying to hold it together, that God will race toward you too. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to embody either of those people that God's purpose in telling this is that he is willing to run towards us with grace no matter where you are, what you have done or accomplished, the ways that you have screwed up or the things that you've gotten right, that the grace of the Father runs towards us. I want to put a list of questions up. And we're probably actually, I'll, I'll post the prayer of examines today because as it happens, I went long. Um, I, these are questions that as I was trying to think like, where does this parable meet me today? These are questions that I was just asking of myself. These are questions that I was asking of myself when I came to this. God, what is it, what is unformed in me that I still run away from beautiful relationship and towards pleasure? God, what is unformed in me that feels entitled and offended by your compassion to everyone? God, how am I meant to live like you so that I might celebrate the resurrection wherever I see it, even if it costs me? Have I come to terms with the ways that I keep other people in my debt? How do I withhold? What feels more important to me than celebrating somebody who has come to life again? Have I made other sin primary and mine secondary? Do I prefer your things above your presence? And if any of those questions help you hold this, they're there for you. There's um, a quote by Timothy Keller, and he says, most of us think, most of us think that God wants good people, but Jesus shows us that God wants new people. And I don't mean new as in like people who have not been a part of our church to come into our church. I mean people who are made new. God isn't so interested in our goodness. He wants us made new. He wants us presence. When we look at the garden, when he created everything and everything was good and beautiful, it was a time where he just walked with Adam he just wanted to be with us. And, and when we live in these places of shame, it separates us from that. God wants new people. These questions might help us reorient our imaginations away from our preoccupation with our badness and the shame that that causes or our goodness and the entitlement that that causes. How can we be more like the Father where we welcome people in and before they've proven anything, we say, dance. Let's throw a party. I insist. So now, as we can move into a space of communion with each other, um, I'm going to invite Barb up, and we're going to serve communion. I'm going to invite the 
worship team up and the prayer team. And if, if that is you and you would love to have somebody to pray with, or if that feels like a brand new invitation for you to just be welcome home. Again, maybe it's been a long time since you've felt the permission to party. Maybe today you can take that on, knowing that the Father is ready and willing to confer sonship, daughtership in you. You are welcome. You are welcome. So come up as you feel ready to at your own pace. We've got the bread and wine and the prepackaged grape juice and cracker there. And so let's close in prayer, take communion, and sing with each other. Lord, would we sense, um, would, would we pause all of our preoccupation with how we might turn inward and make this about us, but Lord, how can we identify with the Father in this parable to showcase that sort of welcoming grace towards others? Lord, would you form us in a way that allows us to say yes to that sort of kingdom, being present here now, knowing that that is what eternity, that is the incense of eternity. Thank you for this parable. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.